Yes, guys, we've got a doozy for you today. With me today is author, lecturer, former zookeeper, a real-life Indiana Jones, maybe, but most definitely a true boots-on-the-ground full-time cryptozoologist and the zoological director for the Center for Fortean Zoology, Richard Freeman. Now, I saw Richard for the first time watching a TV show called Penn and Teller's Bullshit. And as you can guess by the name, they were not really very nice towards Richard, editing his sound bits out of context and leaving out the good stuff. So I called Richard on the show to originally talk about all the times he was screwed over by paranormal television. But we actually ended up recording all the good bits. We mostly talked about the Center for Fortean Zoology and their many expeditions throughout all the different continents except Antarctica, to track down real flesh and blood cryptids, and I'm not talking about Mothman or Bigfoot. No, we're talking about the Russian wild man. Or how about the Orang Pendic of Sumatra, the Mongolian deathworm that slithers in the sands of the Gobi Desert, and also potentially not extinct still-living specimens of the Tasmanian wolf. But since Richard himself is also very, very open to the paranormal aspect, we went into talk about spook lights, fairies, light beings, and even tulpas. Yes, guys, I got a real flesh and blood cryptozoologist on my show to openly talk about tulpas. <laughs> Okay, listeners, we are having a very special guest today because usually I talk about cryptids from a, a very sociological perspective, but today I have a full-fledged boots-on-the-ground cryptozoologist on the show and the zoological director for the Center for Fortean Zoology, Richard Freeman. Hello, Richard. Hi. Well, Richard, I am uh, very stoked to have you on the show because ever since I uh, saw you for the first time on Penn and Teller's Bullshit... <laughs> I was very interested in who this individual is, and I read some of your books and heard you on other podcasts, and I really like the way you talk about cryptozoology, even though you are a uh, you know, full-fledged flesh-and-blood cryptozoologist, you are very open even to the paranormal and to the folkloric side, so I think we'll have a very good conversation here. Yes, well, the thing about that episode of Penteo's Bullshit, we were up at Loch Ness, and um, I, I, I was saying how it's nigh on impossible for the Loch Ness monster to be, to be a surviving plesiosaur. It's absolute yes. nonsense. If it's anything, it's some sort of large fish that's been seen. And the thing that fits the bell most is a gigantic sterile eel. Now, they said in the final edit, they got some fish expert in saying, oh, well, Lake Michigan is X amount as big as Loch Ness, but the biggest fish ever caught there was only eight feet long. It was a sturgeon. But I answered that. I answered that in that there are much bigger fish found in much smaller lakes. There's a lake called, I think it's called White Lake in Wisconsin. And it was drained due to a sinkhole appearing. And there have been stories about a monster in White Lake for years. It turned out to be a 14-foot-long sturgeon. And that was in a relatively small lake, much smaller than Loch Ness, much smaller than Lake Michigan. I myself saw an 8-foot catfish in a 2-acre lake in Lancashire in England. Every single uh, objection Penn and Teller raised to cryptozoology 
John Downs and I answered, and we answered mm-hmm. it thoroughly, but they never used any of those answers in the final cut because yes. they wanted it as straw men. Yes, exactly. Now, when I was watching Penn and Teller's bullshit, it was like the greatest show I ever saw because I like, you know, tricksterish figures and I, at the time, was a debunking atheist, you know. I still am, but I am not as cynical about it. And when I saw you on Penn and Teller's bullshit, I, I thought, wow, they're really not fair to this guy. <laughs> so... My pitch to you for this episode was, hey, Richard, do you want to come on and talk about all the times you were screwed over by paranormal television? But we can get into that. Oh, many times. Many times. <laughs> I wanted to first show maybe the listeners your uh, credentials in the cryptozoological world. So can you tell us maybe something about the Center for 14 Zoology? How was it founded and what do you guys do there? It was founded by a guy called Jonathan Downs in 1992. And it was meant as not only a cryptozoological organization, but an organization that looked into legends and folklore about animals and strange tales and stories about animals as well. Uh, and also tackled the paranormal side of it as well. Hence, it's called Fortean Zoology because it encompasses not just true cryptozoology, but the, the weirder side of it as well. And we publish a magazine called Animals and Men. We've got a publishing arm that does many, many books. It's done well over 100 books now. And we take expeditions around the world searching for things like the Tasmanian wolf, the orang pendek, the giant anaconda, Mongolian death worm, the yeti, and many, many more. So I've been on every continent except Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of if there are any cryptids in Antarctica, except for that Japanese one that is not really a cryptid, but a, a meme on the internet? I oh, that nonsense. There, there have been unusual creatures seen in the sea around Antarctica, but on land, mm-hmm. there are no land-based mammals, obviously. There yeah. are, the, only, the only things you really get are penguins and other birds, and you get sea mammals, of course. As far as I know, on Antarctica today, uh, there, there are no cryptids on land although there may be some very interesting fossils what i can discovery oh yeah i think there are dinosaur fossils found there also giant penguins from prehistory that were as large as people oh yes yeah which brings to mind the Ivan t sanderson's uh, debacle in florida with the, with the giant penguin story have you heard that one i am familiar vaguely with it Yes, they, these huge three-toed footprints were found along a remote beach in Florida, and there were vague reports of people seeing some upright walking animal uh, moving around in the in the swamp, and there were some reports of an unusual animal seen at sea. Ivan T. Sanderson went and looked at these prints and then concluded that they were from a 15-foot-tall species of unknown penguin that lived on some undiscovered island, and this one had just got lost and turned up in Florida and wandered Mm -hmm. around and scared a few people and then went away again. I mean, all of that based on a footprint. Yeah, it sounds like an episode of Scooby-Doo. Yes. (laughs) This is what's fascinating to me because cryptozoologists are very diverse in their approaches. Like even if we compare American cryptozoology to British, now American cryptozoologists are more focused on the hard flesh and blood. But as you say, you guys at the CFZ, you are incorporated 14 in the name. So you even look at the paranormal, even the sociological aspect. Now, is there more of a like hard flesh and blood approach to cryptozoology in the UK or is it all more 14? It's a mixture. The mm-hmm. stuff that interests me most is the the hard flesh and blood stuff because I, I do believe there are uh, species of large animal awaiting discovery and that's what interests me the most. 
But like any fringe subject, it will attract idiots and nutcases who tends to spoil it for the others because the general public seem to think that everybody is the same. Everybody has these bizarre beliefs. And if the media gets a hold of it, they will always go to the most extreme, the most silly. For example, there's a, a, a stupid idea knocking around and it's been going for a while now that there's a type of Bigfoot that lives in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. Britain is about the size of the state of Oregon. Yes. It's one of the most deforested places in Europe, and it's got a population of something like 65 million people. You can't hide a race, and you'll need a whole race, of seven to eight foot tall hominins in Britain without them being found. It's just not going to happen. But people mm-hmm. insist that, that that Bigfoot lives in Britain, and it's in every country park. And it's, you know, it ran the suburbs of London and things like that, which is complete and utter madness. We, we see that even like in the States, like every state has their own version of Bigfoot or a hairy hominid. It's like uh, people want to localize what, what we were talking about before recording this uh, Jungian archetype of a wild man. But they mm. want to localize it uh, in their own place of residence. So they project this this idea that is present in every culture of a wild man, wherever they live, regardless if it makes biological sense or not. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But what we do have is big cats. Mm-hmm. Nobody can deny that because they've been caught. Big cats have been caught in Britain. I've seen a, a, a puma in Britain and I've examined a kill that was on a sheet that was undoubtedly done by a big cat. And it, it looked very like the kills I examined when I was in Africa. And in the same area, um, leopard hair was found and positively identified by Lars Thomas from Copenhagen University. Now, I, I do realize that your first dabble into cryptozoology was hunting the beast of Bodmin Moor. Yes, it was, way back when. Yeah, that's when I, I first stumbled across this, this magazine called Animals and Men. Uh, it was at Potter's Museum of Curiosities at the Jamaica Inn on Bodmin Moor, which is sadly now defunct but i picked up this little magazine called animals and men and liked it and i was living as a student in leeds in the north of england in yorkshire at the time i started writing for the magazine and then john downs who ran it said yeah come on down and be our zoological director and since then i've been all over the world looking for all kinds of creatures Mm-hmm. I do know that you had six expeditions to, uh, was it Sumatra, Sumatra to hunt yeah. down the Orang Pendic. Yes. And, and not hunt down. I mean, that's <laughs> too harsh, but rather search for it. To search for it, yeah. Yes. Now, when we're talking about Bigfoot, like, I really wanted to ask you, man, do you believe in the possibility of a Bigfoot in the UK? And you said, absolutely not now. <laughs> I think I'd agree. And what you guys do, your approach is you want to find, you know, flesh and blood cryptids. You go where the flesh and blood cryptids probably are, like in Sumatra with the Orang Pendic, which I believe also is possibly a real thing because it seems to be a subspecies of the orangutan. Yes. Well, as recently as 2017, we found a new species of orangutan, the Tapanuli orangutan, which is genetically different from the Sumatran orangutan and the Bornean orangutan. Now, now I want to ask you, you were we aware of this orangutan before but we did not do the genetic analysis like was it was it a cryptic species before the molecular studies i believe it was i, I believe that it was it, it, it was unknown but with mm-hmm. orang pendek it's been reported since the, the time of the first dutch settlers and all the native people knew about it i've been over there six times now I've heard it calling, and the last time I was there, earlier this year, I heard it calling from maybe 30 feet away, behind a stand of bamboo. And I had my camera ready, and one of my colleagues went around, this is in deep rainforest, went around the stand of bamboo to, to try and flush it towards me, where I could film it. 
But instead of coming towards me, it ran off at an angle into the jungle and he got a glimpse of a few seconds of its back disappearing into the jungle. But if I'd have gone round that stand of bamboo, instead of waiting for it to be chased out towards me, I'd have got it on film, which was unbelievably frustrating. But every <laughs> time I've been, I've found the footprints, I've found handprints, I've heard it calling. Uh, a colleague of mine a few years back saw it in a tree, he saw it clamber down from a tree walk away on its hind legs and I've talked to witnesses I've, I've lost count of how many witnesses I've spoken to that have seen this uh, not just native people but westerners as well Debbie Martha who at one time was the head of the Indonesian Tiger Conservation Group she saw the Orang Pendek on four different occasions and the hair we got from it was analysed by Lars Thomas who I mentioned earlier who's a leading expert in mammal hair they couldn't get DNA from it it was too fragmented but mm-hmm. the structure of the hair led him to believe that this was related to, but distinct from the orangutan. So it looks like it's a ground-dwelling species of upright orangutan. Okay, and all of the other three species are arboreal? All of them are arboreal. The male Sumatran orangutan, and I believe the Tapanuli orangutan, on the rare occasions that they come to the forest floor, they'll walk erect, but they look very different from the, the orangutan. The orangutan is usually described as having black or dark grey hair, although sometimes it can be reddish or even yellowish in colour, which is not surprising because you can get quite a variation in, in primate hair. And it walks very comfortably and upright like a man, whereas the known species of orangutan, when they walk upright, they walk with a rather wobbling, unsteady gait. And the, the, the footprints and handprints are different. I used to be a zookeeper. I specialised in crocodiles and alligators and snakes and lizards and things. But the zoo I worked at, Twycross Zoo in the West Midlands, was Britain's largest collection of primates. And during my training, I worked with all the primates. So I've worked with all of the great apes and I know what their footprints look like I know and their handprints I know what an orangutan's handprint and footprint looks like the orangutan deck is totally different it has a much broader heel and much shorter thicker toes its its foot is made for weight bearing for something that walks on its hind legs and its handprints the handprints are more like the handprints of a small gorilla than an orangutan the thumb is larger and the fingers are are, are much thicker and shorter than those of an orangutan so it's i i I am a hundred percent convinced that the orangutan deck is a real animal and it's some sort of orangutan yes i i find it fascinating that there is still a possibility for you know uh hominids cryptid being a real thing but not the way most people want it to be (laughs) you know not not the american sasquatch everybody knows and loves but just a subspecies of upright walking orangutan i also think that um, the other hominin I'm, I'm fairly convinced of is the Yeti in mainland Asia and its its various analogues around mainland Asia. It's certainly not a bear. People have tried to say people are, are mistaking bears when they see it. I, I know Brian Sykes did some kind of genetic studies and determined yeah. that it can be a different species of bear. Yeah, but once again, if you look at the documentaries there, they were very much straw men. Mm-hmm. They, they got hair from, they didn't really interview witnesses. They talked to one man who found one dead and his description of it was of a bear. They took hair from a really badly stuffed specimen, which was obviously a bear. So they're getting bear hair. Now, I know that you went uh, on expeditions to the Caucasus region to look for the Almasti. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the Zana controversy? That's something I covered in depth on my show. That is such a convoluted story. It has so many twists and turns in it. 
it. Now, the genetics is saying that Zana was a sub-Saharan human woman from sub-Saharan Africa. So the descriptions of her given at the time are clearly something not human. So either the descriptions are wrong or they've been exaggerated or this individual person had some sort of condition like hypertriclosis or some other deformity and probably mental deformity. Mental. Yes. But I think Zana is a red herring and she's a pseudo alma. I've been to the Caucasus talking to people who have seen the Almaty. We talked to the deputy head at Alborus National Park, who's a doctor of geology. He had seen one of these things. I was over there with a Ukrainian. This is way before the Russia-Ukrainian. Uh, I was over there with a, a couple of Ukrainian scientists, one of which, Gregory Panchenko, was a biologist. And he had seen the creature and seen it close up. Uh, inside an old barn in the 1990s. He was just 10, 15 feet away from it, hiding under straw when he saw it. Uh, another guy was Anatoly Serendenko, who's an archaeologist who has been paid by the government to excavate Samatian, Samatian tombs in the Caucasus. And he saw one of these creatures as well. So these are not just laymen. These are men of science with no axe to grind that have seen something very strange. And I think what we're dealing with is a relic hominin. We know from the fossil records that there are new species of hominin turning up in the fossil record every year. And we also know from genetic studies that certain populations of human beings, like those around New Guinea and Melanesia and some in Tibet, have genetic markers that suggest that their ancestors mated with species of hominin that we know nothing about. We haven't even got the bones for them yet. So the idea that the descendants of some of these hominins are still around is not impossible. We're not talking about a, a purple three-headed griffin that speaks in tongues. We're talking about something that's a biological possibility. Yeah, but but I don't necessarily see it as descendant, maybe a sister taxon or something. Yes, but quite possibly. Because um, Homo floresiensis, the little Flores people, and more recently their relatives Homo lutsonensis, found on the Philippines, which were both the, the tiny little hominins, it appears that they were a sister group to Homo habilis. They were not relatives of Homo erectus that we first thought. They were relatives of Homo habilis, mm -hmm. which was a creature found in Africa, in East Africa. We didn't know that it left Africa or had any lineage outside of Africa, but a sister group to it turns up half a world away and nearly two million years out of time. Which begs the question, what else is out there? Yeah, like how many transitional forms are there between the Homo habilis and the Homo floresiensis in those two million years? And there's, there's a very good book called Between Ape and Human by a guy called Gregory Ford, who's an anthropologist. And he was studying the people on, on Flores. And he was studying before um, Homo floresiensis was discovered. He was hearing stories about small, hairy, wild men uh, on the island of Flores. And they seemed to match up very very well with the reconstructions of Homo floresiensis. Now, in the east of the island, his new book is all about the east of the island. There are still contemporary reports of these things by people. And it's one of the places I want to go that I haven't been yet to, to check out these reports. Now, uh, in those areas, are there also sightings of the Megalania? No. Okay, because I was under the assumption where Homo floresiensis uh, was found that that's the same part of Australia where Megalania 
you're still no, no. Homo floresiensis was found on the Indonesian island of Flores, not on Australia. Oh, sorry. Yes. Megalania yes. lived on Australia. The, uh, the Komodo dragon lives on Flores, but not not in the large, large populations like it does on Komodo. Okay, because there is this overarching myth or idea or whatnot that when Homo floresiensis was alive that they were hunted down by giant Komodo dragons or Megalanias or something similar to a monitor lizard. Well, well, there were large monitors, including the Komodo dragon on Flores, so they would have preyed on Homo floresiensis. Yeah? There was also a giant stork. It was like a marabou stork, but as tall as a man. Mm-hmm. Okay, now this goes into what we talked about before recording. You had this idea of like all of these creatures that we encountered during our history and evolution are kind of incorporated into the collective unconsciousness and we can sometimes project them. So I know that dragons are a big thing <laughs> for you. Uh, you started uh, writing book uh, with uh, writing a book about dragons. And this like idea, if Homo floresiensis was hunted down by monitors, could that be some kind of source or contribution to the collective consciousness of this idea of a giant uh, reptile hunting down people and contributing to the overarching uh, dragon myth? Yes, well, I call this the global monster template, and it goes back much further than um, Homo floresiensis. Wherever you go in the world, you get similar monsters in the legends and the folklore. You will always get dragons or analogues thereof. Dragon legends go back at least 40,000 years, and they're found in every culture on Earth. The dragon truly is the king of the monsters. Forget about demons and werewolves and vampires. Dragons are more powerful and and widespread and ancient than than all of them. You always get stories of of hairy giant trolls in Europe and wild men and woodwoses ogres and things like that. You always get stories of monstrous big cats. You get stories of demonic or monstrous dogs. You get Mm -hmm. stories of monstrous birds. And you get stories of little people, pixies and elves and gnomes and things. And I came up with this theory when I was in Thailand. It just popped into my head when I was looking at some statues one day. And there were statues in this this park of the Naga, which is a giant serpent from Thai folklore. The Garuda, which is a creature half man and half bird. And the Singha, which is a sort of mythical lion that's supposed to live in the jungles of, of um, Asia. And I thought, goodness me, this reminds me of Cornwall in England, where they have legends of Morgar, the sea serpent. They have legends of the Owl Man of Morn and Smith, which is a creature supposedly part man and part owl. And they have the mysterious big cats. And then something clicked in my head. And I, I thought, hang on, these could have all been things that were menacing our ancestors millions of years ago. If you go back two million years to the plains of East Africa, our Australopithecine ancestors were coming out of the trees to exploit new food sources like carrion. And they were being preyed on by crocodiles and pythons. The crocodile today is still the most dangerous large predator in the world. Big cats like leopards and lions. African hunting dogs. Birds of prey like the martial eagle and others that left claw marks on fossil skulls. And they would have been in competition with other kinds of astropithecine, some bigger and more robust, some smaller, and other primates. There was a giant baboon back then. Uh, and it was as if all of these things that were either preying on our ancestors or competing with our ancestors, they were all resurrected in a distorted form in the global monster template. And I thought, could this be something to do with the collective or gestalt human subconscious? And our fossil memories, the fears that are handed down to us through millions of years, through the generation, could these be creating a gigantic subconscious tulpa or thought form? Tulpa is a Tibetan word, and the idea is that under intense concentration, Tibetan lamas can create 
3D images, like almost like an artificial ghost, of animals, creatures, or people. And if there's any truth to that idea, what could the sub- collective subconscious of mankind do? There was a guy called Franek Kluski in the early part of the 20th century. He was a Polish medium. And at seances, he was said to materialise animals, like a huge bird. And there's a photograph of a huge bird like looks like, like a nightjar sitting on his head. Uh, an ape-like creature that seemed to be part man and part ape. A huge lion-like cat that would lick the hands of the sitters with its rough tongue. And an immense black dog, which seems like he was almost like he was dipping into the global monster template. He was creating these things from the subconscious. So that would explain why a monster can appear somewhere where it's highly unlikely it could survive, uh, the resources aren't there to support it. It could appear, terrorise a load of people, and then just mysteriously disappear again. And we find that in so many monster accounts, people see something, it appears, and a number of people see it in a, a small area, it terrifies a load of people, and, th- and then it vanishes. And you get that in dragon legends as well. If you look into dragon legends in Britain, a lot of them sound very like sightings of monsters today. This thing appears, terrorizes an area, and then just vanishes again. Okay, man, you've opened a can of worms here. So first off, I am so glad that you that you are on the same page with me um, because I talk about this all the time. I'm also glad that you're not worried about your credibility as a full-fledged flesh-and-blood cryptozoologist now talking about tulpas. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a cryptozoologist. I'm also a Fortean. These yes. things go hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. It's like saying, oh, I like eating meringue. Mm-hmm. But I also like eating venison. Yes. <laughs> I yes. like both of them. It's t- I'm, inter- I'm interested in both of these things. And then one of them shouldn't adversely affect the other because it's two different things. Yes, exactly. I, I see like cryptids can exist in many different forms and roles at the same time. Like even I myself, I am a brother, I'm a son, I am a worker, you know, I, I fulfill many different uh, social roles as one person. And with animals, you know, an animal can be just an animal, but can also have its own ecological niche. It can be an alchemical symbol. It can be a pop cultural icon. You know, it can fulfill many different roles in the uh, natural or in the sociological ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. But the one thing I don't buy about monsters or, or cryptids, the classic ones, is that they're purely fictional. They exist only in the imagination. They have no objective reality because they do. Some cryptids, mm-hmm. I think, are objectively real all, all of the time. Others are objectively real some of the time. Oh, very, very interesting. Now, I would argue that the imaginal is not necessarily not real. It is just a, a real in a more uh, subjective sense rather than objective sense. So I don't I don't buy the idea that everybody who's ever seen a Bigfoot are, are just mistaken bears. Uh-huh. It, that makes no sense whatsoever. Okay, but he- hear me out on this so maybe somebody can see a bear but interpret it as a bigfoot and they can have a bigfoot experience that changes them in their life so even though they they saw a bear the experience is the experience of a bigfoot that uh, draws from this collective unconscious presence of a wild man we all have yeah like somebody can see a floating log in Loch Ness and think it's a monster 
Mm -hmm. But like if that floating log changes people, then uh, how real or not real is it? You know, if it actually influences people in the world. I have this idea, like if somebody sees a flock of geese and mistakes for a UFO, they had a real UFO experience. They're sent off on their way to uh, transform and change as a person due to this UFO experience, but it's just a flock of geese. But who cares? We wouldn't have the word flying saucer if it wasn't for a flock of geese. Yes. <laughs> and even flying saucer was um, misquoted by the press. But okay, go going back to this, are you aware of old stinker in the UK? Yes, yes I am. Okay, are you aware of the fairly recent studies that suggest Old Stinker is a manifestation of ecological guilt because in that place wolves were eradicated, and now due to yes. this guilt we are projecting the image of a wolf? Yes, so, okay. so I, do, I do wonder why it hasn't manifested before. Hmm. A friend of mine went to hunt for it. A friend of mine went to try and bait it out with a piece of steak. Uh-huh. And said that the closest thing he saw to it was a large fox. Would you be able to incorporate this theory into your overarching theory? Like, could Old Sinker be a manifestation of ecological guilt? It could be. If we are projecting something for, that we used to experience in that place. It could be. The interesting thing about werewolves, though, is that we have this idea of what a werewolf looks like in our heads that's completely false. It's from Hollywood. The idea yes. of this up upright walking hair-covered creature with a wolf-like head. There's nothing like that in actual folklore. If you look into the European folklore of werewolves, there were people that transformed entirely into a wolf. Mm -hmm. that didn't look any different from any other wolf, uh, except perhaps by weird behavior. And it was usually either from a curse or from uh, a belt or a fur jacket given to them by a sorcerer that allowed the person to turn into a wolf. So the actual werewolf in legend looks nothing like the actual werewolf that is reported today or the werewolf from Hollywood. The same with fairies. The idea of fairies as cute little people with wings that flit about. If you look into actual fairy folklore, there's something to be feared. They're often yes. grotesque. They never have wings and they're not always small. So the way we think about things is, is also the way I think that affects the way things look today when we see things. Exactly. I had on my show Morgan Daimler, the fairy lore uh, author, a few times. And one time we did talk about this pop culture image of a fairy, how it seeps now into anecdotal accounts of people actually sighting fairies with wings. Obviously, mm. that's not a fairy from traditional folklore. So what is it? Maybe a tulpa, maybe a manifestation. I mean, I've, I've had my own fairy encounter on Dartmoor in the... <laughs> southwest of England. Okay, can you share that? Yeah, yeah, sure. It was about the year 2000, it was either 1999 or 2000, and I'd gone out with three friends to visit a stone circle called Scorrel on Dartmoor, which is a wild part of the southwest of England, and we were walking over some fields to get towards it, and it was in the evening, but it was still light, it was sort of twilight time, and we entered a field which had a dry stone wall around it and a metal gate. And we were looking for the gate on the other side of the field. And it wasn't a particularly big field. But all of a sudden, it seemed like we couldn't find our way out. And we were wandering round and round in circles looking for the gate on the other side. And I noticed that it had become dark. So we'd spent far longer in this field than I thought. Wow, so you were a pixie led and you had missing time. <laughs> yes, we had missing time, yeah. Then all of a sudden, by the dry stone wall, appears a ring of light about five feet across, a bluey-white lights, and they looked like the lights you get on a big wheel or a ferris wheel in a circle. And I said, look at that. And everybody looked at it and saw this ring of lights. Then the lights winked out, and we were standing there sort of wondering what the hell was going on. Then the lights came back on again, but this time they were in 
a different configuration. And they looked like the crude outline of a person, as if a person was picked out, their outline was picked out in lights. Um, do you know in public toilets where they have the image of the man and the woman? Yes. The yeah. It was like that, but mm-hmm. made up of these little dots of light. And then that disappeared. And at that moment, I realized what was going on. I thought, we're being pixie led. And the legends say that if you're under the spell of the pixies, the thing to break the spell is to turn your coat inside out and put it on inside out. And I said to my friend, look, everybody, take your coats off, turn them inside out, put them on again. And nobody said, what are you on about, Richard, you mad bastard? Why are you asking (laughs) us to do that? They just did it instantly. And then there was the gate right in front of us. Wow. (laughs) You would not believe how many people I had on my show who shared, let's say, uh, accounts with little people, gnomes, um, or Mm. these encounters of being pixie-led or seeing lights that they thought were entities. And it's something that we see all across the world. Now, I want to ask you, since you've been on various different contents, have you ever anywhere outside of the UK felt that you are being pixie-led or had any light phenomena? Uh, I've never felt like I've been pixie-led, but I had light phenomena in Tasmania. I was over in Tasmania searching for a creature called the Tasmanian wolf or thylacine, flesh-eating mm-hmm. marsupial that looks rather like a dog or a wolf and has tiger-like stripes down its back. Yeah, and, and for, for the listeners, that's what is usually called the Tasmanian tiger that was eradicated, supposedly, in the early 1900s. Yeah, well, another name for it, and a much better name for it, is the Tasmanian wolf, because it was an example of convergent evolution. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't related to wolves or tigers. It, it's a, a flesh-eating marsupial. Exactly. And if we look at marsupials, we can see that they come in various different shapes. Like there is a marsupial flying squirrel thing. There's a marsupial mole. It's all because of convergent evolution. At one time, there was a marsupial rhino. Yes. <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. But this, this one evolved to look like a wolf because it was filling a, a similar ecological niche. In fact, the mm-hmm. niche was more like that of a coyote than a wolf. And this thing was supposed to have been wiped out by white settlers in the 1930s. But since then, there have been over 4,000 sightings of it, including by a park ranger and a zoologist. And its continued existence has even been predicted by computer program. And I've been over there three times looking for it now. And I've spoken to, once again, people with no axe to grind who had good long looks at this, including a guy who his job is to go out and shoot feral cats which are a bloody menace in Tasmania, and he's seen it twice. So it's another it's another cryptid that I'm near as damn it to sure exists, the flesh and blood animal. Okay, I wanted to bring up something controversial whenever you brought up the, the Tasmanian wolf for today's episode. So I have this idea, like with the old stinker idea of we eradicated the wolf and now people are seeing a wolf man because of this ecological guild being projected from the collective unconsciousness. What if the Tasmanian wolf is now a part of the collective unconsciousness of that area? and people are projecting what they used to encounter. Well, in that case, I'll be using Occam's razor in this, Mm -hmm. in that it's more likely that the animal has actually survived, because Tasmania is about the size of Ireland. Its population is less than half a million, and most of them live in Hobart and Launceston. When you get over to the west of the island, it's utter wilderness. There's enough prey and wilderness area for it to survive. And when they did the studies recently on the Tasmanian devil, which is one of its closest relatives. They did genetic studies on the Tasmanian devil because of this facial cancer they've been getting. They found that you only need a very small base population of them to recover. So it could be the same with the Tasmanian wolf. It probably only needed a small base population for it to recover. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that it leaves footprints behind it. It makes very distinctive kills. They had a way of killing where they would tear the snout off their prey and then they would drink the 
the blood and then they would bite into the abdomen uh, and the rib cage and they would eat all the highly vasculated organs like the liver and the lungs and the heart and many dead animals have been found for this trademark Tasmanian wolf kill and I've seen photographs of the tracks I've spoken to witnesses I think I've even smelled it because I used to be a zookeeper and the old bushmen who were around when the Tasmanian wolf really was there and we know for sure it was there they said the ones that they captured had a smell very similar to a hyena because a lot of them served in South Africa during the Boer War and they said it smelled like hyena I was in a remote part of Tasmania on a forest path when I got a distinct smell very like that of a hyena it was as if something had just passed there minutes before and left the scent trail behind it and when I came back again it had gone so it seemed like something had walked across the the trail there are you aware if the tasmanian wolf from you know accounts a century ago did have some kind of distinct smell yes yeah the people the people who trapped them and worked with them and who had also been in the boer war in south africa said they smelt like hyenas another name for it was that was the the hyena there's a place called hyena hill in tasmania Mm -hmm. Where these things used to live. Okay, that's very interesting. I do also believe that it really may still be alive. The whole Tolpa idea is, you know, just for fun because of this idea that we may be manifesting something from from the past that we encountered. Well, I apply I apply the Tolpa idea where the biological animal doesn't fit, mm-hmm. like old stinker in England, it doesn't fit the area that it's been seen in, in Hull, and it doesn't look like any natural animal, and it doesn't even look like the legendary werewolf. It looks like something from Hollywood. Yes, but uh, also we see, like with every previous cryptid that has been discovered by science, let's say you often talk about the gorilla, all of these folkloric tales of what the gorilla was that do not match up with the biological creature. So we can have the biological creature, but we can also have folklore, we can also have these societal constructs. Gorillas would carry off native women and rape them, and they would yeah. tear branches off trees and use them to fight elephants. And they don't do all; they don't do any of those things. Yes. But also, there's the reverse of that. There's something called the giant monkey tree frog from South America, and there are native stories about that. That if you drank its secretions, it made you invisible in the jungle, and it stopped you being hungry or thirsty, and it and it made you superhuman. When biochemists looked at the secretions of this species, they found it had chemicals that negated hunger, negated thirst, negated fatigue, and masked human smell which would effectively make you invisible in the jungle. Exactly. And I do see that as uh, because indigenous people are more, you know, animistically oriented in their belief systems and more in tune with nature. They use animals as uh, personifications of these various natural forces and powers. So uh, we should maybe listen to the indigenous people. And we, we don't need to take these stories like literally because even the people in their belief system, they use these animals as personifications of natural forces and in this case let's say that tree frog is the personification of going invisible but what does going invisible mean to these people uh, compared to western society it means uh, your smell being masked yeah yeah anyway i was going to tell you about these lights whilst i was in tasmania the last time i was over there we'd gone to a place called bronte lagoon which was in the middle of tasmania because it was the end of the expedition and my friend Mike Williams and I went to stay the night with a couple who lived next to this lake called Bronte Lagoon in a farmhouse. And they said that every night at about 10.30 for two hours, weird lights would appear 
in the forest outside the, the house, between the house and the lake. They said there were these little balls of light and they'd appear in the, in the forest and at one time one of them came close to the house, moved along a uh, window box and in the morning all, all the plants in the window box were dead. And Mike said he'd seen these things too and he believed that they were something paranormal. So we were out there 10.30 at night looking for these things and a grape-sized, lozenge-shaped yellow light appeared over a chicken coop hovering there then it disappeared then all of a sudden more of these lights came on in the forest and some of them were hanging in midair some of them were on tree roots some of them were on branches and they were not fireflies which i've seen many times and they were not glowworms and if you walk towards them you could get within 10 feet of them and they would wink out and then appear deeper in the forest and you'd get so far into the forest and turn around and they'd be behind you we observed these things for some time and then mike and i drove round to the far side of the lake because there was a lighthouse at the lake. And we wanted to check it had nothing to do with the lighthouse. But the beam of the lighthouse didn't come anywhere near the forest or the uh, farmhouse because they were on a higher elevation. But while we were on the far side of the, ha- of the, the lake, we saw a glowing sphere that was red and about the size of a beach ball hovering in the trees. And when we went back round to the house again, it had gone. But the people in the house said they saw it, but they thought it was orange rather than red. The only frame of reference they had for it was aliens. They thought it must be UFOs and aliens. But it was a bizarre thing that felt totally different to the stuff I experienced on Dartmoor. This felt mechanical. You felt like even if there was no one there to see it, it would just still happen. Uh, apparently, it doesn't come if it's raining. The rain stops it. And you said that it was hovering above a chicken coop. Were there possibly, you know, reports of mutilated chickens or something like that? No, no, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting, it, and it ties into the lore of these uh, spook lights that I hear oftentimes. Yeah, well, it, I, I'm, I've just written a new book called The Highest Strangeness, which is out later this year. And one thing that I find in monster sightings, UFO sightings, ghost sightings, and other phenomena as well, one of the things that turns up again and again and again is weird lights. It's mm. almost <laughs> as if they're one of the baseline things that appear. Exactly. Uh, I have a friend who does the podcast Six Degrees of John Keel, Barbara Fisher, and she actually looks into the lights as a source of all uh, paranormal phenomena. She Mm. researches that. And even with the light being that you saw in the UK that you perceived as a fairy, there are numerous accounts of light beings, the the way that you describe them as that symbol of a person on on the door (laughs) of a bathroom. Yeah, I, another person might have interpreted that as, as being something to do with UFOs, but yes. I felt very strongly that it was fairy. Yes, and it's very interesting. It, like, we in these uh, 14 circles like to read all these books and literature, but we forget that everything is filtered through the narratives of the person who is writing down the stories and not necessarily always including what the witnesses tell them. Like, oftentimes we would have witnesses say they saw Bigfoot, but with a spook light. But then the Bigfoot researchers would exclude that from their um, yeah. narrative. That's something I never do. I never do because it's a vital component. Mm-hmm. And one thing I've noticed is that in Asia, with things like the Yeti, you very, very rarely get these weird phenomena associated with it. But with the North American Bigfoot and with the Yowie in Australia, you get glowing balls of light, poltergeist outbreaks, all sorts of things in tandem with them. There's a great story that I cover in this new book about a poltergeist case in Australia. I believe it was in the 1930s. And it was at this remote farmhouse and it had all the 
all the stuff you get in Poltergeist. Heavy footsteps uh, from upstairs when there's nobody there, objects flying around, beds being moved. And in the middle of the Poltergeist manifestation, the door bursts open, a yaoi comes in, grabs a woman by the leg and tries to pull her outside. That's not a coincidence. Mm. I don't think that's a coincidence. And very interesting that we see that, like in North America, most of the stories we know of are documented in the book where the footprints end. But like halfway across the world in Australia, the uh, similar things are happening. Yeah, there's there's another another case investigated by Tony Healy and Paul Cropper, who are two guys, Australian guys, a lot like me in that they're cryptozoologists, but they're open to paranormal interpretations. And it would be great to get them on the show because they're both fascinating. And Tony Healy has been doing this for years and years and years, since the 70s. He's been all over the world. They talk of a number of cases like this. There's one where they interviewed this guy and he'd gone, he was a, he was a teenager and he'd gone to a sort of a, a woodland camp where there were cabins and things, but it was out of season and there was nobody there. And they, him and his mates were camping there when they saw these figures, these tall, hairy figures, and they said they seemed to move unnaturally fast to be in one place and then suddenly they'd be in the other. And they brought with them a feeling of unbelievable fear. And he phoned his mother up, actually weeping in terror. And his mother came out and got him and his friend and he was crying when it was being driven away and he had a feeling that this thing was somehow pursuing him. Now, that's a really important thing. It's a small, a small factor, but it sticks out. Pursuit. I've heard this time and time again. There was, there's a lake in the north of England called Bolam Lake in a country park. It's near the city of Newcastle. And people were reporting seeing this hairy monster there, like a Bigfoot, which obviously can't exist in, as a flesh and blood animal in a, a hundred acre country park. Anyway, one of the people we talked to was a woman called Naomi and her teenage son. And they had driven to this park to look for this thing. They'd heard about it in the news. And they said they parked, parked up in a car park and about a hundred yards away, they saw this creature standing in the forest, covered in long hair, and they said it made a noise like Chewbacca from Star Wars. And they had a feeling that even though it was standing still, it was somehow rushing at them. And they got scared, and they had to drive away. And they had this feeling that it was pursuing them. And they were looking in the wing mirror, thinking it was somehow pursuing them. In um, Loch Fadda in Ireland, uh, in the 1950s, uh, a woman called Georgina Carberry and her friends were on a fishing trip, and they encountered this creature which they said had shark-like jaws and a long snake-like looping body that moved in a wordy way that scared them so badly that they would never visit the lake again. And she was interviewed by F.W. Holiday, who wrote the book The Dragon and the Disc, which is a book you absolutely must read. It's, mm-hmm. it, it was all of this stuff, the link between lake monsters and UFOs and the paranormal. It, it was written in 1973, but it's absolutely great. Yeah, m- most people know of the Goblin Universe that he uh, wrote yeah, later this, on. This, this is the book before um, yes. The Dragon and the Disc, which is brilliant. He interviewed her and she said that as they were driving away, she had a feeling that it somehow the creature had somehow left the lock and was pursuing them along the road. And she was, again, looking in a wind mirror thinking that this thing was somehow coming after them. A friend of mine, who is now a very well-respected scientist, and he won't give his real name and go on record, he, he told this to me in confidence, but he's now a very well-known, uh, internationally well-known scientist. When he was 14, he was with his girlfriend on holiday at a place called Morn and Smith in Cornwall. And he, one night he was walking through the woods near the old church at Morn and Smith when he encountered the Owl Man which is a creature similar to the, the North American Mothman, but it's seen in the southwest of England, in Cornwall. And he said this thing was sitting on a branch, and his 
torchlight fell on it. And he said it had these great glowing eyes. It wasn't an owl. He was adamant that it was not, not an owl. It had a huge wingspan with claws on it, these bizarre pincer-like talons on its, on its legs. And it scared him so badly that he said both he and his girlfriend felt that it somehow followed them back home again after the holiday and was lurking in the woods outside of his house. And he said he claimed to get glimpses of it. And so did his girlfriend. And he had nightmares about it for years. And he felt this as if it was pursuing him. And still today, he's now in his late 40s. He's still terrified. He's still really frightened when he talks about it. And this echoes the um, most well-documented case of the Mothman in Point Pleasant, of the two couples being their car being chased by the Mothman. Like, was it really chased by the Mothman, or is it this feeling that you're constantly bringing up of people feeling that they are pursued by what they saw? Yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting. In all of the cases I mentioned, they didn't actually see it pursuing them. They had a feeling that it was somehow pursuing them, even though they couldn't see it. With the Mothman, they actually saw it. They saw it flying above their car and next uh-huh. to the car. and Yeah, but somehow they, they believed that these things were coming after them. And there's a thing called contagion that you get in poltergeist cases, where a lot of poltergeist cases where people investigate extreme poltergeist infestation and then it somehow follows them home and manifests in their own home usually to a much smaller extent but only for a night or two but somehow it there's a contagion that follows them yeah that, that's what people refer to now as the hitchhiker effect mm. uh are you aware of the philip experiment yes i am okay. i cover that in my book as well absolutely fascinating i interviewed susan demeter on my show who knows one of the psychologists who conducted the experiment and she herself has been attempting to replicate the experiments trying to conjure a ufo and with the philip experiment originally i think one summer they paused the experiments and the participants uh had the hitchhiker effect they brought the phenomena back home with themselves it's also interesting ritual magic is is i think is, is another factor in these things you must have heard that alistair crowley the great occultist once owned Beleskin house on the shores of loch ness yes <laughs> and he was conducting i think it was like a 15 month magical experiments called the ritual of abramel in the mage where he was trying to contact various archetypal entities, one of which was Leviathan, which was a Hebrew sea dragon. And apparently the ritual went wrong and a number of his servants went mad and he ended up leaving the house. And afterwards, various people that have owned the house have said it's been haunted. Uh, Jimmy Page, the rock star, owned it once and his caretaker reported all sorts of bizarre things happening. And then, of course, we have the manifestation of the Loch Ness Monster not long after um Mm-hmm. Well, we this is exactly the stuff I brought up like a few episodes ago when I released this episode. So I'm I'm loving how many synchronicities there are in this conversation, man. Yeah, in um, in the Dragon and the Disc, if you've not read it, but there's a 1969 some American students found uh, in the graveyard at the back of uh, Bolesian House. They found what looked like a swiftly abandoned ritual with paraphernalia, a red candle and a conch shell, and a very old Turkish cloth that had the Turkish script for dragon on it, mm-hmm. right next to Loch Ness. I wanted to ask you, because we're, we're talking about the Owlman of Cornwall, we're talking about the Loch Ness Monster, are you, I'm assuming, possibly aware of Doc Shields? Yes, I've met Doc Shields. I know Doc Shields. I haven't seen him for a long time, but I know Doc Shields. Okay, can you share something about Doc Shields? Because that's somebody my, myself and my friend Todd Purse talk a lot about, but we don't have much information on him, so... Doc Gladly Shields, share anything you can. Uh, he drinks an industrial amount of booze. <laughs> he, he once said to my friend, Doc, Doc Shields once said to my friend John Down, he was 
staying at John's house, and John found him over breakfast drinking a bottle of rum. And he said, haven't you got a hangover? How can you drink this early in the morning? Haven't you got a hangover? And Doc Shield said, boy, you haven't had a hangover since April of 1957. And John says, why not? And he, uh, and he says, I haven't been sober since April <laughs> of 1957. Another thing he says is, is that all you 40 and gobshites, you're all trying to work this out as if there's some reason for it. There's not. All this stuff just happens. It's the way the world is. When will you learn that? Yes. We, we, we do know about the story where he attempted to summon the Loch Ness Monster by hoaxing it. And uh, lo and behold, the mo monster showed itself before him, but in a way that nobody will ever believe him. Yes, yeah, yeah. He is the ultimate trickster. He's like Loki or the Coyote. He's, he, he himself is a manifestation of the trickster figure. He's, he's a hoaxer and a thimble rigger and a teller of tall tales, but things happen around him. Is it that he maybe baits the paranormal by being that way? Like, there is this idea that the paranormal uh, is attracted to people who, let's say, are artists or uh, take psychedelic drugs and do, you know, art based on that, because nobody will believe their stories. Oh, there could well be something to that, yeah. Very interesting. Like, it shows itself, because it is a trickster force, it shows itself only to those who do not have the credibility to be believed. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm thinking now how you brought up in Asia that there are no uh, paranormal ties to, well, say, the very few. There are, but they're very few. Mm -hmm. when very few. Australia and, and, and North America. The stuff from Asia all seems to act and behave like a real flesh and blood animal or hominid. Okay, so since we're talking about this occurring in Australia and the United States, which are or, or North, North America, which are both continents where uh, people from the UK settled them. So, yeah. you know, descendants of UK people on land that is not originally theirs. Would there be an element of this paranormal phenomena manifesting because the people there are not in the place where they should be? That's an interesting idea. I've, I've not heard that before, but it's a possibility. But they... they the native people have these stories going back way, way before the white man ever got there, though. Mm -hmm. So is it maybe then the white man experiencing the phenomena of the land? Maybe, maybe. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was um, a flesh and blood Bigfoot as well. I don't, it could be a paranormal thing appearing alongside a flesh and blood thing. Yes. I'll, get, I'll give you an example. In Britain, and also there's quite a few in Europe as well, and in, you get them in South America as well, there are legends of ghostly black dogs, huge black demonic dogs like the Bargest and Black Shook and things. But there are real black dogs as well. So there's no reason that there shouldn't be a, a phantom Bigfoot and a real Bigfoot. Yes, one is the flesh and blood animal uh, objective being, and the other is a more archetypal being. Yeah. Not necessarily a black dog, but rather what a black dog symbolizes to us collectively. Yeah. Okay, man. So we're, we can go into this now. Uh, the Mongolian deathworm, <laughs> which is something I'm very interested to hear from your perspective. So as somebody who is very interested in the flesh and blood aspects of cryptids, you want to search for cryptids on these expeditions to find them. Yeah. What got you to finance an expedition to hunt down the Mongolian deathworm, which is always perceived as kind of an offshoot cryptid? Like, nobody would ever think of that one as being a possible real creature. Well, it was taken seriously by the Mongolian government under the Soviets in the Socialist days. Um, Roy Chapman Andrews, when he went out bottle hunting there, 
the Prime Minister of Mongolia told him to be on the lookout for the death worm and even gave him a pair of enormous tweezers to grab it with if he saw it because he wanted this stuff. So they, they took it seriously enough. But I went over there because I thought what's happened here is the mythalization process that we talked about before where certain animals get bizarre powers attribute, uh, uh, attributed to them. And some of these, like with the, the giant monkey tree frog, turn out to be true. And others turn out to be nonsense. Like there is a, uh, a gecko called the choke gecko. In Pakistan, they call it the bisad. And I think it is 20 times more deadly than a cobra if it bites you, which it isn't. It's not poisonous at all. So I thought, well, it sounds like there's something at the bottom of this. And I talked to the late Czech cryptozoologist, Ivan Merkele, who'd been over there. And the whole thing sounds fascinating, fascinating. So I went over and 2005 for three weeks into the deep Gobi and I spoke to around two dozen witnesses. We travelled for about a thousand miles and they were all describing the same animal. They said it was sausage shaped, uh, reddy brown or brownie red or brick red and it was scaly and it was two to three feet long and most of them had just seen it lying in the desert. One guy said he saw it killing and eating a mouse, biting a mouse and eating a mouse. And another uh, another woman said she saw it crawling in and out of holes in the desert. And we came to the conclusion what people were seeing from their description was an amphisbana or worm lizard. Worm lizards are this strange little group of reptiles which aren't snakes or lizards, but they're related to them both. They're generally limbless and they look like outside scaly earthworms. Or like giant dicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or giant dicks, yeah. The, the people we spoke to, the nomads, they said that the electrical powers that the death worm is supposed to have, because the stories over here say that it generates blasts of electricity that can kill camels and people. They say, they call it throwing lightning, and I say, it doesn't do that. The, the death worm, that's just folklore. But they believe it's poisonous and it can stick, but nobody had ever seen one stick or knew anybody that got poisoned by one. They heard old stories about it, but no one had ever seen it happen or knew anyone that had been killed by a death worm. But lots of people had seen it. One guy saw it when he was a boy, when he was tending the camels and goats for, for his family, and he went and told his family, and they were so frightened by it that they rounded up their animals, packed up their gur, which is the, the circular uh, cloth tents they have uh, made out of animal fur, and they moved out of the area. So a death worm sighting can send a whole area into a panic. They're so frightened of it. But one guy we talked to, who was in his 90s, had seen it back in the, the 1930s, and one guy who was about the same age as me had seen it just the year before, and their description was exactly the same. Now, in the Sudan, in Africa, there's a snake called a sandboa, and there's a number of different species of sandboa, but in the Sudan, these small, harmless snakes that feed on rodents, they're immensely feared. They call it the apris, and they believe it's so deadly and so poisonous that it doesn't even have to bite you. If you just touched one, you would fall down dead. A bit like they used to think the same things about salamanders in medieval Europe. Uh, and I'm thinking about the uh, mythological basilisk in Greek yes, mythology. Yes, very similar to that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think this is what happens with the death worm because it's this strange looking creature that is only rarely seen and lives in the deep Gobi that all these strange stories have been attributed to it. And I think it's probably a, a fairly harmless animal. And I said that if I saw one, I would catch it because I, I'm used to handling reptiles. I've handled poison snakes and all sorts of things. So I'd catch it and we would bring one back if I would get close enough to it, but we, we never did. But I came away convinced that this is a real animal, that the powers attributed to it are apocryphal. 
It's probably a worm lizard or, failing that, a new species of sand boa. It's some sort of reptile. It's not, a, it's not an actual worm. And it's very interesting how you said now in the Sudan, people attribute all of these characteristics culturally, mythologically to the Sanba. Yeah. And yet here you, you do not have in your hands the flesh and blood creature, but you do have the similar cultural and sociological interpretation of a supposed creature, just as in Sudan. So yeah. based on that, you can maybe make the assumption, well, there must be a similar creature here as well. Yes, yeah, I think it's a, it's an almost identical story. Mm-hmm. It, it's some sort of it's some sort of reptile, a sandboa or a, an amphisbaena. But I'd love to go back to Mongolia because it's such a bizarre and wonderful and strange and alien looking place. Yeah, and even like if it is not an amphisbaena or a sandboa, like if it's something completely different that you would not guess, still it's very similar how the creatures on different parts of the world fill out the same ecological niche through convergent yeah. evolution. Yeah. Like we see with the Tasmanian wolf in yeah. Tasmania. But then convergently people, because we are all humans and we all share this collective unconsciousness and these archetypes, uh, these anxieties, uh, we all attribute the same characteristics to these same ecological niches, regardless of the actual biological species and its ancestry. Yeah, yeah. It could be a, a, a survival trait because this thing looks like a snake you know, better not touch it because it might be deadly. Mm -hmm. I also want to point out, like, if people are there saying, like, it throws thunder or something like that, maybe there is some kind of linguistic cultural context that we are missing there. Like, in my language, Serbian, we have a lot of sayings that have a cultural meaning, but if you translate them into English verbatim, people will not know what the heck we're talking about. So maybe throwing thunder is some kind of cultural linguistic meme there that when translated into English on the internet, people then think, oh, this monster electrifies its prey or something. Well, one of the people we talked to was an old retired colonel, and he was at a um, military base on the borders with China. And there's only like a skeleton crew there now, just a few families. Mm -hmm. It's been largely abandoned. He was telling me that how in the 1970s, he was driving on a patrol one morning when he saw what he thought was a, a tire lying in the sand. And as he got close to it, he saw it was the death worm. And he said it was this sausage-shaped creature, scaly, all coiled up. And he said that the dew on its back was glistening and in the sunlight, giving this electrical effect. And he said, that is where I think this idea that it generates electricity comes from. It's when mm-hmm. the dew collects on its back and it makes this sparkling effect. And he, he stood and observed it for some time, then went off to get a camera. But of course, when he got back, it had gone. That's very interesting. And I really like how you acknowledge the cultural stuff. Because what I see with cryptid fanboys online, let's say with the Mongolian deathworm, they will go into this speculative biology route where they are now thinking up what kind of electrical organ this thing can have. And maybe it's traveling through the sand and generating static electricity and whatnot. And yet you use Occam's razor and go for the sociological route. Maybe this is an interpretation of something else. Yeah, uh, yeah, you've always got to look at that sort of thing. Yes, I, I find that with flesh and blood cryptozoologists, like in the mainstream, they oftentimes want to dismiss everything that is folkloric, that is cultural. But the thing is, we don't have these <laughs> creatures in our hands, you know, thus they are cryptids. And the only thing we do have is the folklore, which we want to disregard. Hmm. Well, I think you can get great clues from folklore. I think yes. folklore and, and legend have a grain of truth in them. 
and we, we can glean interesting clues from them. Mm-hmm. I see it as kind of interpretations of what kind of cultural or social role these animals fill out mm-hmm. in the consciousness. Let's say with the flying frog, you said, like, it obviously does not turn anybody invisible. But to these people, invisibility means not being uh, smelled in the jungles by predators. So to them, that fills the sociological niche of invisibility, not not the objective material hard science of, oh, somebody cannot be seen. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. that. A perfect example. I, I see that with with the Mongolian deathworm because I, I find it very interesting your your take on it and your you bringing it back to flesh and blood, but also acknowledging the folklore because what we see on the internet is a confabulation of what is what is talked about in the folklore of the people there. My golden rule would be talk to the native people, talk to them. Because with yes. the death worm, when you, you talk to them, you see it's totally different from this idea we have of it in the West. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I was telling you about the Popobawa. Yeah. Um, how and it's a relatively modern monster there were panics in the ni- in 1995 it got its way into the internet the internet molded it into a cycloptic bat-winged demon and now the culture there is incorporating that uh, sort of vision of the popobawa into its own mythology hmm. now how often do you see uh, w- when you're traveling to these other uh, cultures uh, investigating their cryptids and folkloric beings how often do you see that the local people there who are now, you know, more modernized, are incorporating the Western interpretations of these monsters into their own beliefs? Well, it certainly didn't happen in Mongolia. It didn't happen in Sumatra. Uh, The only place I can think that has something like that was West Africa, the Gambia. I went over there to search for something called the Ninkinanka. And there were stories of this from British doctors and stuff who were over there in the 20s and 30s who said that they believed in this dragon-like creature that lived in the, the, the River Gambia. The native people believed in it. And one time, this doctor, uh, Del Rimple, I think his name was, Dr. Del Rimple, he had a magazine with photographs of model dinosaurs in it from a, a park in America. And the native people saw, saw a pop dinosaur and said, oh, the white man has photographed Ninkinanka. He said that they believed that this great creature lived in the river. And we looked into this and there were stories of it rearing up and destroying bridges and it was blamed for floods and pollution events. I've always thought that if the Michaelian Membi exists, and it does sound more folkloric than flesh and blood than mm-hmm. the if it exists, it's certainly not a sauropod dinosaur because they didn't live in water. Well, A, they've been extinct for 65 million years and B, they lived on land in herds like elephants. So if it existed at all, it could be some sort of huge monitor lizard, similar to the thing in New Guinea that is semi, semi-aquatic. We went over there, and when we talked to the people there, it's very different. It's much more serpentine. Uh, they were talking about a serpentine animal with a crest on the head, and if you saw it, you would die within five years of seeing it. They blamed it for all sorts of things, from road accidents to people vanishing in the swamp. They were genuinely frightened of it. Um, one village was completely abandoned after someone said they'd seen one of these things. We talked to a native guide once who took us into the swamp and then got so frightened he wouldn't go any further because he was frightened of, uh, of the Ninkinanka. Uh, we talked to another guy who you know, wouldn't even look at the swamp where it was supposed to live. He turned the other way. He refused to look at it. He was so frightened. And eventually he went and hid behind a bush. We had to interview him from behind a bush. But what we... What we concluded was that this thing, it's sort of like a bogeyman they blame for everything bad. Uh, The only 
person, we only met one person who claimed to have seen it. Everybody else said, that, oh, a great hunter from our village saw it, and, and he died soon afterwards. Uh, another guy said he'd seen it, his grandfather had seen it in this lake at the time of World War II, and he died afterwards. And we met one guy who claimed to have seen it, and the size he was saying it was, was so fantastic, it was like something out of a Godzilla movie. And when he showed us the hole that he's supposed to have come out of, it wasn't much bigger than a rabbit wallet. So we were not inclined to believe him. But we found out that prior to it becoming an Islamic country, uh, it was very animist. And one of the tribal beliefs there was a, a python cult. They believed uh, it, it, they had a sacred python. They worshipped the python. So one of the things that big religions do when they move into an area, they will demonize the local deities and co-opt co the local festivals as their own. So what I, I think has happened here is that the is that when Islam took over, it demonized the, the the deity of the python cult and turned it into this swamp-dwelling dragon, the Ninkinanka, which was thought to be utterly deadly. It's a little bit like how um, Christianity turned the European horn god into the devil. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you're aware of the Mamlambo in South Africa. Mamlambo. Okay, it is supposedly a serpentine, uh, half fish, half horse that eats people's brains. Oh yes, yes, yeah, mm -hmm. I know the one. Yeah, in the Mizantlava River. Now uh, I'm working on having a South African podcaster talk about it on my show, but I've been looking at it, and there is not much information because the uh, cultural origin of this thing is lost to history because of colonial imperialism, and this is what we see in Africa, unfortunately, with all these cryptids. The Mamlambo is now perceived as this monster that eats human brains but originally it was a river goddess and it is exactly that what you're saying of how cultural imperialism then demonizes the the indigenous local religion and creates a monster out of their religious icons oh something similar happened with the, the tokoloshi in south africa there's a great book called terror of the tokoloshi which mm -hmm. is all about this african goblin the Tokoloshi, which is like this hairy little ape-like creature that's supposed to have a great extendable penis, and it rapes women and causes poltergeist outbreaks and rains of stones and things, and all sorts of fortune phenomena are attributed to uh, the Tokoloshi. As, as is in Zanzibar with the Popobawa, yes, another commonality very there. Similar, but it, this thing doesn't have wings, but it's a, yeah. it's, it's a very similar narrative. And there's even whole schools that have been closed down because of Tokoloshi scares. Oh, uh, nowadays it's actually Pinky Pinky. Pinky, Pinky it became yes. an ur Pinky, urban Pinky, legend thing. Yes, Pinky Pinky is covered in this book as well. Yes, Pinky Pinky lives in the toilet. Yeah, and the trace that Tokoloshi originally, it was a river deity, and it was brought to South Africa by tribes who moved into the area, but then it was completely culturally changed into this <coughs> devilish goblin, mm -hmm. and it's all tied up with sexuality because there's this, this appalling statistic that two in three girls in South Africa will experience rape. So when I was interviewing Dr. Katrina Daly-Thompson for the Popobawa episode and they wrote the book on the Popobawa Popobawa, uh, Tanzanian talk, global misreading. They started off their investigation into the Popobawa with the intention to make it out to be maybe related to the AIDS epidemic there. Yeah. Which is another, you know, thread that we see throughout all of these legends, as you're now talk saying about the Tokolosha and the Pinky Pinky as well. There's a, there's a um, social stigma about anal sex as well. And this thing is supposed to anally rape men. 
Yeah, it's very interesting how we see that in various different countries along the west coast, uh, or rather the east coast of Africa. Again, it goes to show how we cannot disregard the folklore and the culture. <laughs> mm. I mean, okay, so I wanted to go into this when you went to, I think, Guyana to look for the giant anaconda, which was a sponsored expedition that was unfortunately conducted in the uh, wrong season. <laughs> Oh, good Lord. It was the hardest expedition I've ever done. Okay, I, I, I wanted to just mention this before we get into that. So along the way, you were looking for other various different creatures, and you did mention in some podcasts that you were looking for these little people over there. Were these yeah. maybe Alushas or were they Duendes? Um, well, they just, they just call them the, the red-faced dwarf over there. And mm -hmm. it's very much a native thing. The native population, rather than the, the, the colonists, report them. Uh, our our guide is a, a guy called Damon Corey, who's a Eagle Clan Arawak chief, and we went with him. And he'd seen one of these things. He said he was out camping once, and he woke up in the morning, and something was unzipping his tent. And he said this little head peered in, and it had this painted red face, and it was grinning at him. And he found himself paralysed; he couldn't move. So this could have been a sort of hypnagogic event or something, filtered through this cultural thing about red-faced dwarves. But everywhere you go, people said they'd seen these three-foot-tall dwarves with red faces. One of the local guides we had was a, a guy called Canard, and he said that when he was a lad, his dad had a moped, and he would drive this certain route, and every time he drove this route, this little red-faced dwarf was waiting for him, and he'd run up, jump on the back of his bike, hitch a ride with him to a certain area, then jump off at this same certain area every single day. And Virtually everyone we talked to had either seen one or knew someone that had seen one. So are we talking about an undiscovered race of pygmies? Or are we talking about something that's more like fairy lore? Or mm -hmm. who knows? And the reason I bring it up is because uh, these people had these stories of Alushas. That's the indigenous legend. But then when they were conquered by the Spaniards, the Spaniards brought with them the Duendes. Yeah. And now the indigenous people, instead of talking about Alushas, talk about Duendes, which are a Spanish thing. And we even see Duendes being reported in the Philippines as well. So it's always like when there is cultural imperialism and colonization present, the colonizers bring with themselves their own folkloric figures that are now incorporated into the native culture. Mm, yeah, they do. But in Guyana, they were not called Duendes. They didn't have a name for them. They just called them the red-faced dwarfs. Mm -hmm. It was only indigenous people that I spoke to that had seen them. And uh, regarding the giant anaconda, so can you tell us a bit about that? I'm aware that this expedition was sponsored by Capcom, the video yeah. game company. Yeah. The Monster Hunter people, they do the Monster Hunter game, they, they gave us some money to go over there as part of their advertising campaign. But unfortunately, we had to go in October, and it was the middle of the worst drought the country has had in living memory. So we couldn't get out to the remote rivers and lakes where the giant anacondas were supposed to be. We couldn't go along the rivers, they were too low. And we couldn't rent a, a plane or a helicopter to get out to this very remote area. So we just had to walk into some dried up marshland looking for these things. But it was the wrong time of year. Damon Corey said that some hunters had told him of one of these things at a place called Corona Fall. And they'd seen uh, an anaconda that was so vast they ran away from it. And when he asked them how big it was, they said, well, look at that palm tree over there. They showed him that he, he put the point of palm tree. He said there was a dead tree like that 
lying in the water and it's crawling over it and the head and neck extended past one end of it and the tail extended past the other which would make it something like 45 foot long and anacondas keep growing throughout their lives like all reptiles the growth rate slows down but it never stops so we mm-hmm. don't really know what the ultimate size of them is and you can apply this to things like crocodiles as well they keep growing throughout their lives so when you pick up a book and it says that the nile crocodile and the saltwater crocodile get to x amount of feet long well that's only the ones that have been measured exactly now are what do people theorize about the giant anaconda because i assume that there are a lot of people who would say oh it is a relict titanoboa or something like that no 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 i think it's just exceptionally big freakishly big specimens of the green anaconda i think occasionally you will get a genetic quirk within a population that makes some individuals grow very big and other factors are lack of disturbance and quality of food we found that with with captive groups of crocodilians the ones fed on fish didn't grow as big or as fast or as large as the ones fed on red meat and that's been known for some time populations that have less disturbance they tend to get bigger so ones in remote areas get bigger so if you're looking at something that's got a lot of prey it's an undisturbed area it it has the potential to grow huge and the reason i ask is because before recording i asked you like do you often stumble upon creationists in the cryptozoology field because i see they would be very interested in these cases of a giant relic reptile species and oftentimes living dinosaurs well creationists i have absolutely no time for i think they're credulous idiots of the first order and creationist cryptozoologists are doing it for all the wrong reasons i do cryptozoology because i want to know the truth i want to know what these animals are do they exist what are they if they're there how can we preserve them creationists are doing it just to try and back up their crackpot ideas about the world being created in seven days Mm -hmm. even if a non-avian species of dinosaur was discovered it wouldn't prove creationism yes exactly and even if they are discovered it would actually prove evolution because we would see differences between the living specimen and the fossil record yes of course you would and even like they they bring up living fossils let's say the the coelacanth all the time but like on a molecular level the coelacanth changed quite a lot compared to its ancestors yes yeah also it's living in the deep sea it's not something that people would stumble on very often yes yes now I wanted to ask you uh, regarding cryptid uh, television. How often are you called to uh, television programs that are not within CFZ's, you know, own plans and expeditions? Uh, Occasionally. Um, I did a few years ago, I did a documentary with a French filmmaker called Christopher Killian, who's genuinely very interested in cryptozoology and very sensible. And he managed to scrape together some money to make a documentary about relic hominins for German and French television. And it is on, an English version of it is now on uh, Amazon Video. It's called On the Yeti Trail. And we went to Sumatra, uh, looking for the orang pendek and we heard it calling and we found lots and lots of footprints and handprints and we got together a bunch of inter- uh, witnesses and interviewed them ones that had seen the creature and seen its footprints and it, uh, the, the resulting documentary is very sort of level-headed without wild speculation or anything like that and is this the usual case when you're on tv it varies. During the lockdown, I did a documentary about the Russian wild man, the Almasty, and we couldn't go over to Russia. So we filmed it in some caves in Dorset in England. 
And basically, it was just me doing talking head about classic Almasty cases, talking about my own experiences and the witnesses I'd talked to in, in Russia and historic cases of where the military have met these things and the fact that the Soviet government took it so seriously that they had a commission to look for it. And that was, that was what was filmed was done well, but the guy said he was wanting to make it have the feel of a horror film. So what the, I haven't seen the, the final, the final cut of it yet. So I don't know what it will be like. Um, yeah. I have been ripped off terribly in the past. Yeah. I was going to get there. I think the story when you were a student. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I was a student, I was trying to get an expedition up to look for Tasmanian wolf and I was contacted by Cicada Films and they said we want to make a, a documentary on the thylacine for a series called To the End of the Earth. And I went all the way from Leeds in the north of England to London twice and told them everything I knew about this creature, all of my research, where to look for it, what to do, what not to do. And they said we've just got to talk to some people in Australia and it's all systems go. And then instead they just stole my research and sent a pretty looking girl instead. And their excuse was, oh, the producer wanted to send a pretty girl. Wow. Because it's visually nice. And you basically helped them do all the research before yeah. they did that to you. Another time there was, a, there was a very long documentary about wild men worldwide. And it had got um, a guy from Ohio University in it. Oh, his name escapes me now. Um, Jeff Meldrum. Jeff Meldrum was in it, a load of other people. I was supposed to be in that with one of my colleagues, and I was off in India hunting the Yeti when it was being filmed, so they couldn't film me for it. But they said, oh, can you do some research for us? And we'll credit you with the research. And they wanted a list of all the Yeti sightings and the Yeren sightings uh, and so forth. And I spent three days compiling these, sent them to them. For, it was for an interactive map they were doing in this documentary. And I said, oh, wonderful, thanks for that. We'll, we'll make sure you're credited with this. When the film came out, there was no mention of me. Mm. They'd just taken my research, not even credited me. And the worst one was a series called Jane Golding Investigates. And this is about this, this woman called Jane Golding investigating various paranormal things. And they said they'd done one series already. They were doing a second series. They wanted to make it more science-based. And they wanted to do something kind of cryptozoology, but it had to be Europe or the UK because they didn't have a lot of money. So I gave them the idea that lake monsters, most of them are probably gigantic sterile eels. And that you could go up to somewhere like Loch Ness or Loch Morar, float some boys out on the water, and underneath have permeable hessian sacks full of bait like meats and fish oil and stuff and if something grabs a hold of this and it's strong enough to pull the boy under the water you know you've got something bigger in the lake than what you know about and the researcher said oh this is wonderful this is such a good idea they'll love this i'll get back to you in two weeks time and i know they're going to love this when he got back to us they said the producer doesn't want to do it because it's too real it's too much like natural history it's got nothing to do with aliens or crystal skulls or guardian angels so that's wow. kind of shit we have to deal with <laughs> and even when you do when you do end up on a documentary like Penn and Teller's bullshit now that you're mentioning throwing boys in the water I remember in that episode they made fun of you for saying that like why would you throw a boy in the water <laughs> yeah. yeah we fall between two things which are the two extremes there's either we're too serious we're too too science based or oh no we don't want to do cryptozoology it's all nonsense or they want a pretty girl on yeah <laughs> Oh man, this is hilarious. 
Well, like, is this usually the case when you have corporate uh, sponsored expeditions? Like, let's say that that expedition to Guyana to look for the giant anaconda during a season where you cannot even find normal anacondas. Yeah. When, when corporations sponsor this, they don't really take into account, you know, the ecology, the biology, the climate. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that is true. Okay, so when, when the CFZ finances their own expeditions, yeah. like how, how do you plan these expeditions out, uh, taking into account these seasonal changes and when yeah. possibly the creature would be present? You have to look at when the best season is to go. You have to look at the terrain of the place. You have to look at where the most recent sightings have been, how expensive it's going to be. We're at the minute planning for another return to Tasmania. We're planning to go to Tasmania this year, and then next year, maybe Iremoti Island in Japan, the Iremoti Mystery Cat, or possibly a return to, Mo- to Mongolia. But mm-hmm. the good thing at the minute is we've got a millionaire called David Ayres who won a £177 million on the National Lottery and wants to finance expedition. And he said, wow. an expedition a year, which is brilliant. That's brilliant. That sounds like something a lot of us would do if we won the lottery. We've wanted this for years. Now, thanks to David Ayres, there's a chance that some of these cryptids may actually be found and accepted by science. Because for once, we've got some money behind us. Mm-hmm. And also, you, you got the money to finance it, but you also don't have, you know, corporations who don't give a shit about yeah. the biology or the science. They they want a pretty girl uh, in front of a jungle, you know? Yeah. Now, now you have somebody sponsoring you who is actually interested in, in the scientific part of it. Yes. He wanted wow. to give to one of more charities, but he said, I, I, I don't know where the money's going to go. So if I give it to the CFZ, I can see exactly where it's going. Yes. Well, I think that's a very positive, optimistic, and hopeful note to end on, man. And thank you for doing this with me. This was an awesome discussion. Like, sitting down with you, I did not expect you'd be even open to the paranormal aspect of oh, all this. And Well, my next book is all about all about that. Yes. But, um, yeah. But if I can, I'd like to plug my, my two latest books, which are pure flesh and blood cryptozoology. Yes. So g- go ahead, plug everything, your, yeah. your current books, yeah. your future books, and where people can find you. Yeah, uh, well, my two latest books are actually, they were written as one volume, but uh, it was so long it had to be split into two volumes, so it's a two-volume set. It's called Adventures in Cryptozoology and In Search of Real Monsters. They're the two volumes, and you can get them, pick them up off, off of Amazon, and you can, you can buy them together as one. And if you're interested in the CFZ, it's www.cfz.org.uk. And if you want to contact me with any information or ideas or anything like that, my email is dr3uk at yahoo.com. And the Doctor 3 is a reference to the British science fiction series Doctor Who, which mm-hmm. is my inspiration for becoming a cryptozoologist. Uh, the real Doctor Who of the 60s, 70s and early 80s, not the, the nonsense that the BBC do now, but uh, the real Doctor Who with John Pertley and Tom Baker. Yes, I know you, you mention a lot how Doctor Who got you interested in the 14. Oh, I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for John Pertley and Tom Baker and Doctor Who. And can you plug your upcoming books? You did mention The High Strangeness one. Yes, CFZ Press will be publishing my book, The High Strangeness. I don't have a release date yet. But that is about monsters, ghosts, UFOs, and other Fortean phenomenon, such as urban panics like Spring-Heeled Jack and demon sightings and fairies and Jeff the Talking Mongoose and modern-day dragon sightings, of which there are a surprising amount. It's all it's from a paranormal viewpoint. Uh, it's the first time I've written about UFOs and ghosts. I've written about monsters a lot, 
is the first time I've written about other stuff, and that will be out later in the year through CFS Press. So keep an eye out for The Highest Stranger. Another book I want to plug of yours is the Encyclopedia of Yokai, I think it's titled like that. Oh, the Great Yokai Encyclopedia. Great Yokai Encyclopedia. Okay, so what got you interested in Yokai, of all things? It was one of those times I was bumbling around the internet looking for something else, and I found a website about monsters from Japanese folklore. And the monsters in Japanese folklore are just so bizarre and weird and strange and entertaining. I thought, I've got to write a book on this. No one's written a book on this in, in the English language. So I, it was great fun to write. I researched all the monsters and ghosts from Japanese folklore and did an encyclopedia of them. And they are so utterly bizarre and strange and wonderful and entertaining. Yes. When we're at that topic, so I previously did an episode where I criticized cryptozoologists for talking about the Kappa as if it's a Bigfoot-like thing, you know? No, of course it's not. Uh, course it's not. Um, based on one anecdotal account from the 80s of some workers seeing a Kappa-like thing. Now, how prevalent are cryptids in Japanese culture? Like, are there any cryptids that they perceive not as yokai, but as actual flesh and blood cryptids? Uh, yeah, there's the there's Tsujinoko, which is a dorsoventrally flattened snake. The description makes it sound like some sort of pit viper. I mean, that goes back in folklore for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. It appears in the second oldest book in Japan. But people see and report this dorsoventrally flattened snake still today. So there could be something to that. And there's, I think, the Hippogon, a Bigfoot-like thing. The Hypogon. Well, the thing about that was it was only seen briefly over a very short period. So if there's anything to that, it could have been an escaped chimpanzee. Because at the time, people keep all sorts of weird pets. Oh yeah, I know. I, I researched into raccoons for my Kunigator episode, and I found that uh, there was some kind of anime in Japan a few decades ago that featured a raccoon character. Pompoko. Yes, yes. They're not actually raccoons, they're raccoon dogs. Oh no, no. Actually, th th this anime had a raccoon character, not a tanuki. And oh. As a result of that, they imported a lot of raccoons from America into Japan, and now there are a lot of uh, raccoons that are, went rogue in Japan because they can't be kept as pets, but were imported. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So now you, you have raccoons and you have tanukis both yeah. coexisting. Now, tanukis have, in legend, have shape-shifting bollocks, which they can use as weapons. And there's one story about a tanuki that disguised his balls as a tea room. Uh, some men went in and were having a cup of tea in the tea rooms, and one of them dropped some hot ash on the floor and burnt the tanuki's ball, and the illusion was broken. <laughs> this this is why I love Japanese yokai. What strange Japanese folklore is. Yeah. Well, thank you again, uh, Richard, for, for having this wonderful chat with me where we went all over the place. I love it. My listeners will probably love it as well. I will plug all your stuff. Links are in the episode description. And I will link the Adventures in Cryptozoology Volumes 1 and 2 as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. For no problem. No problem. So I hope we will have a chance to talk again uh, when you go uh, on some more expeditions. Yes, sure. Or when the new book comes out. Because yes. it's got some really strange stories in it. Giant ghost crabs, crawling, glowing trees, talking mongooses, all sorts of things. Yes, that's exactly the stuff I like to cover on this show. Well, until next time and until you come bearing news that you found the thylacine, the Tasmanian wolf alive, we're going to have you again. Thanks a lot. No problem. And bye-bye, guys. Bye-bye.